Campolo wrote these words about a personal experience that he had as he was flying on an airplane traveling from Orlando, Florida to Philadelphia. He said, I was settled down by the window, the window seat, when I happened to glance across the aisle to the other side of the plane. He said, there seated next to the window opposite mine was one of the most sophisticated and attractive women I have ever seen. She was absolutely stunning and it was hard to take my eyes off her. And after a few minutes, a very with it looking guy got on the plane and he was almost a stereotype of the guy that hangs out at singles bars. His satin shirt was unbuttoned down to his waist so that he could publicly let the chicks see the curls of his hair on his chest and the gaudy gold chains hanging around his neck. And with great interest, I watched as he moved down the aisle. He spotted the empty seat next to the stunning woman who had been holding my attention, and he sat down next to her, and then he, quote, did his thing. He made moves that a New York makeout man would have admired. He says, and in no time at all, he had that young woman thoroughly involved in conversation, hanging on his every word. As a sociologist, he says, he writes, I was fascinated with this interactive process, but then an unexpected and an exciting thing happened. When he had her completely engaged, she made her move and pulled a quick reversal, suddenly extracting a Bible from her purse. (laughs) And before the guy could figure out what was happening, she was laying the gospel on him. (laughs) Her eyes sparkling with excitement, she began telling him all about Jesus. And she pointed out verse after verse that showed the way of salvation. And I must admit that this sudden turn of events amused me. At one point, I had to bite my tongue to keep from laughing. But this was no laughing matter, he says. Brilliantly and seriously, she told the story of God's salvation. And after his initial shock, he actually began to listen to her with genuine interest. The plane had landed in Philadelphia on schedule and rolled up to the reception gate so that the passengers could disembark. And everyone squeezed into the aisle and stood in the usual convoluted fashion, if you know about planes, how that is. And uh, I noticed that this guy and the woman were not standing. Instead, they were both seated with their heads bowed in prayer. She had her hand on his shoulder, and I knew that with that prayer that he was accepting Christ as his Savior and Lord. Now that woman, he says, will not be granted an honorary doctorate for what she did. No magazine will nominate her as Woman of the Year. No mention will be made in the evening news of what she did on that plane that day, but it will have eternal significance. She did something that will live on long, long, long after she is dead and gone. Friends, not everyone will acquire the status of a world-renowned evangelist like Billy Graham or Greg Laurie or someone else, but everyone, every single person in this room can do what that woman did on that plane, if you know Jesus. She simply allowed her passion for Christ and compassion for others to move her beyond the boundaries of her comfort and into the realm 
of another person's desperate spiritual need. Here's a woman who has realized what true evangelism is all about. As Oswald Chambers identified it, and I love this statement by him, he says, evangelism is not giving people what we have found. It's making them homesick for what we have. And I submit to you that there is nothing more exhilarating, nothing more important, and nothing more pleasing to the Father than that. When Jesus is the focus of your mind, when he becomes the passion of your life, when your heart has become his home, you can't help but be contagious. Introducing people to Jesus Christ and inviting them to become his committed followers and helping them to become his committed followers are what Christians should be about. It's what we're supposed to be about at Fayette Baptist Church. That's our mission statement. It's what we live and exist for. Is that right? I'm convinced that most people just need to have their confidence level raised a little bit through a little bit of basic training. Years ago, the Barna Research Group reported that 85% of Christians surveyed said that they wished they had better training in evangelism. 12% of the pastors polled claimed that their churches were effectively prepared for evangelism. Just 12%. That is a horrendous revelation, isn't it? If they are anywhere near accurate, I believe that Jesus grieves over those kinds of statistics. So we're, gonna, we're trying to change that with this series a little bit. Let's just change that, shall we? Okay. Last week I began this series by saying that our Christianity becomes contagious when our confusion begins to clear about it. And we then expose some of the personal misconceptions about relational evangelism and explored a little bit the biblical prescription for it. But today, uh, I need to expand that idea a little bit more by saying that our Christianity becomes contagious when our God-given style of communication begins to emerge, okay? Every single one of us has been designed by God and empowered by His Spirit, again, if you're in Christ, in a unique way. You agree with that? Using our individual gifts, interests, and personalities, he will work through each one of us as we follow him to communicate Christ to the community around us. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, right? Witnesses. So it seems to me that the essential nature of the problem of why we do not share the gospel with those around us is not rooted in the lack of our individual ability, is it? Because Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But rather, it's in our lack of personal repentance. We've been given the power to become contagious Christians. We simply haven't considered it important enough to pursue Dr. Dick Hillis, founder of Overseas Crusades, brings it a bit too close to home when he says this, quote, it seems to me that we need to bow our heads, open our hearts, and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for being a sinful Christian, for not caring about those who are dying and on their way to a Christless grave, an awful hell, an eternal destination in darkness without God, without hope, 
Oh God, help us. Give us a burden. Give us a cry. Give us a concern and a compassion for those who are lost. Isn't that the prayer we should be praying? Because lost people matter to God and they should matter to us. And he wants to use you and I to reach them. As diverse as we are, he longs to use you and me. What I want to do today is to introduce you to a few different evangelistic styles modeled in the Bible in order to help you identify yours. Now, we're going to look at six in all, two or three today, and the next time we'll finish up. And it's nothing really earth-shattering or rocket science, but here's the breakdown. There's a confrontational, intellectual, testimonial, interpersonal, invitational, and serving styles, okay? There's, there's a lot more probably that we could identify. This, this list is not certainly not exhaustive, but it is definitely representative. It's something that you can hang your hat on. You may find that you fit possibly into more than one of these descriptions quite comfortably. You may discover that you have a combination of maybe two or three different ones. The point is, is that all of us can relate to some aspect of these six styles. And it is important to realize how effectively we can be used by God through the way that he has created us to bring this message of Christ to others in a relevant, credible, and contagious way. Okay, so listen. According to Psalm 139, verse 14, you and I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Is that right? And we've been made that way for a purpose, haven't we? God's purpose so today in your bulletin, I have included an evangelism styles questionnaire. You probably already have seen it. I'm going to ask you now to please take them home and fill them out. Please resist the temptation to do it while I'm teaching you. Because <laughs> it kind of defeats the whole purpose if you're paying attention to what's in your bulletin and not listening to what I'm saying, Right? Because you'll miss all the details. I'm going to explain what these things are all about. You take them home, and it'll take you a few minutes to do it. And then next week, when you come back, bring them with you. You'll have all six styles. And when I finish up all the styles, you'll pretty much be able to identify where you fit in all of that. Hopefully. Okay? Agreed? Yeah, I didn't hear that loud enough. <laughs> Hopefully, the results of this, coupled with an understanding of today's uh, next week's scriptures, will help you discover your particular style, at least a starting point, and begin to practice it for the sake of Christ's kingdom, okay? It's just a tool to use. This stuff is not written in stone. This is a man-made tool. Obviously, the Holy Spirit has jurisdiction over your life, and we don't want to pigeonhole you into any one particular thing, but it's to help you. Okay? It's to help and assist you. A few important verses of Scripture set the foundation for what we're about to consider. Paul wrote them within the context of spiritual gifts, 
Yet when accurately understood, they apply directly to the way that you and I would practice evangelism. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a few verses here before we get into the bulk of what I want to say. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Verse 18, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Okay, you see that? In the words of one author, God built diversity into the fabric of this body of believers. And until we realize that, we will find ourselves needlessly imitating each other's outreach efforts, wastefully duplicating some approaches while harmfully squelching other approaches. You see that? Our Christianity, again, becomes contagious when our individual God-given styles of communication begin to emerge. So God wants you to be contagious. He wants me to be contagious. How Has he designed you? That's the big question we're asking today and next week. Over the next few minutes, I'd like to ask you, ask yourselves, to ask yourselves which of these three evangelistic styles describe you, if any of them. So let's look first at the confrontational approach. Believe it or not, the biblical model of this was read this morning from this platform, unbeknownst to Dominic when he chose these scriptures, they are the exact scriptures that I had planned to read in my message. He did not know that. That's the Holy Spirit. So I don't need to read them again. So here's Peter, okay, impetuous, ardent, impulsive, aggressive, self-confident. You know, these are just words, a few words to describe the Apostle Peter's character before his conversion, right? Is there any question that Peter was confrontational? You think? In the Gospels, we find that no one spoke more often than Peter. Nor was anyone spoken to by Jesus as often as Peter. He was praised more and rebuked more than any of the other disciples. No one else had the audacity to reprove Jesus. But Peter did. No one confessed Jesus as the Christ as boldly or denied him so vehemently. No other disciple was as verbally blessed by the Lord than Peter either. And yet no other was referred to as Satan by the Lord either. After his conversion and the power of the Holy Spirit set him on fire, it only got hotter. Brought under spiritual submission, however, Peter's roughness was refined. His compulsiveness was turned into competence and he was used mightily for Christ. 
Let's look at a few verses. Acts chapter 2, verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Skip down to verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. You think he's being a little confrontational there? Verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Following Pentecost, in the power of the spirit, Peter jumped in with both feet as he stood before 3,000 people preaching the gospel. More than 3,000 people. And when he decisively preached the truth of the gospel and called the crowd to repentance regarding their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah in Acts 4, 5,000 more people came to Christ. So first there was three, and then there was five. And after those 5,000 came to Christ, Peter and John were arrested. It was Peter who prompted the choosing of the disciple who would take Judas's place in Acts chapter 1. It was Peter who healed the lame man as we read about this morning in Acts chapter 3. In Galatians 2.9, Paul calls Peter along with James and John the pillars of the church. It was Peter who stood firm exercising discipline in the church in the case of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. He was the one that rebuked Simon the magician when he thought he could buy the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8. Peter was the one delegated to go to Samaria and identify the authenticity of the Samaritan's great awakening in Acts chapter 8. And he was the first one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and advanced missionary activities in the surrounding areas in Acts chapter 10. And it was Peter who confidently defended including the Gentiles in the Christian movement in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And Peter had this confrontational style. Now, so far, how many of you think that you might have this kind of style? Go ahead and raise your hands if you think that you might have them. Okay, keep them up. Keep them up there. Don't be ashamed. Okay, everybody else look around at these people. These are the people you want to avoid if, <laughs> if you bruise easily, okay? I'm just kidding. Peter's confrontational character as a disciple was transformed 
transformed by the Holy Spirit into competence as an apostle and contagiousness as a witness for Christ by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. See, his inquisitive nature, when ignited by the Holy Spirit, gave him the initiative to carry out his commission as a leader in the early church. Peter's confrontational style fit Peter's personality. He confronted people with the facts about Christ and their need, and people responded to that. Thousands of people responded. Thousands actually responded to that kind of preaching to the point of salvation. And some people need that kind of presentation. Don't try to tell everybody that they have to be gentle souls because there are people in this world that need a confrontation. And only those that God has wired up that way and empowered by the Spirit can pull it off. If you're a gentle soul, you wired a different way. God's going to use you in your way. Don't try to be confrontational if that's not your style. Okay? Because it'll blow up in your face and you'll end up becoming hated by all. (laughs) Right? Not really, but people will avoid you. It's funny that people didn't avoid Peter. Thousands came to Christ because of Peter's preaching. Some people will never come to Christ unless someone like a Peter holds their feet to the fire. Yet that confrontational style takes on many, many different shapes. It's not always bold and brash. Confrontational style simply means even the most innocent and unassuming person can have that style when it's used by God effectively with just one simple word of confrontation that gets to the heart of that person in that moment when fired up by the Holy Spirit. I read uh, some years ago that a man was assigned to the middle seat on an airplane, tired and wanting to sleep. He was just a bit irritated when the young girl next to him with Down syndrome asked, Mr., do you brush your teeth? And yes, he replied, well, that's good. People who don't lose their teeth. A little later, she asked, Mr., do you smoke? No, he answered, that's good. People who smoke usually die. After a long silence, she turned to him again and she said, Mister, do you love Jesus? Well, yes, I do, he responded. Well, that's good, she added, because people who do go to heaven. And though deeply touched, he settled back, hoping there would be no more questions. But just then the girl said, Mister, ask the man next to you if he brushes his teeth. Well, you can guess what followed, right? When she came to the question about Jesus, the second man became thoughtful, and he said, I'm afraid I don't understand, he said. And for the next hour, the two men started talking about eternal issues. Why? Because that young girl was bold enough to say, do you love Jesus? Simple, yet confrontational. Amen? Different people, different characteristics, same confrontational style. When my son Josh was a toddler, he used to approach everybody we met and ask two questions. Number one, do you like snakes? (laughs) Second question, do you love Jesus? Now that I think back on that, it's kind of like heaven or hell, right? You like snakes? Do you love Jesus? (laughs) It's just like... But it's amazing how that simple question confronted people. And got to the core. See, when a three-year-old asks that, what's, what's the adult going to say? 
My brother-in-law used the confrontational method on me when I first came to Christ, and he wasn't so kind. He was a lot more like Peter. But I'll tell you, it challenged me to grow in my spiritual walk to the point where it eventually led me to quit my job and answer the call to ministry. But it took him being in my face to get me to do that. God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? Do you have a Peter personality? The Holy Spirit can work powerfully through your confrontational style if you do. Having a confrontational evangelistic style doesn't mean you're a bull in a china closet, by the way. It means simply that you can speak the truth in such a way that people feel it deeply in their soul. And there are always people who will look down on your no-nonsense, say-what's-up-front, no-beating-around-the-bush approach. Because some people just don't like it. But you know what? Maybe you might be one of those people beginning to think you can't be used by God in his kingdom because you always say the wrong things or you ask too many questions or you react too passionately about Jesus. Hey, learn from Peter. Stay close to Jesus. Put all of your character traits under his lordship and you will be used by him. No question about it. Some people are just waiting for someone like you who will, in a compassionate but firm way, get in their face, reveal the truth, and challenge them to do something about that truth. The Spirit can use that, and he does. So the personal characteristics about a confrontational style, typically people with this style, they don't like making small talk, but are usually confident, assertive, and direct. Some contemporary examples, just to give you an idea. Franklin Graham may have this kind of style. John MacArthur, Ray Comfort. These are a few of our contemporary people that have this. Other more familiar examples from this church. Well, you just saw them raise their hands. You see, people with this style, however, also need to know some spiritual precautions. So I'd be remiss if I didn't bring that up. Don't misunderstand your confrontational style or its approach. It is never to be rude and obnoxious. Decades ago, Albert Barnes noted, quote, if men will not hear us when we speak to them kindly and respectfully, we may be sure that they will not when we abuse them and become angry. We harden them against the truth and confirm them in the opinion that religion is of no value. So, if you have this particular style, then be very, very careful with it. Take great pains to use tact when confronting people with the truth. Jesus confronted sin, but he never unnecessarily offended anyone. The offense came because he was right, because of the truth that he spoke, not because of some personal quirk that he exhibited, right? Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal when and how to speak to each person that comes into your sphere of reference with the appropriate mixture of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Make it a point to memorize and live by scriptures like Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, which says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, if you have this style, something like this should be your daily prayer. Lord, my heart is a fountain and my words its streams. You listen to my speech, Lord, so it must be important to you. 
So please help me to store up your word of life in my heart so that words of life will flow from my lips. As Elisha threw salt into the spring to purify the water, so I ask you, Lord, to season my heart and my speech with the salt of grace. That should be the kind of prayer that you pray each day. Another biblical example of a confrontational style would be Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The result with Stephen, however, was quite different than Peter. They killed Stephen. So you never know what the result might be, but the point is he was faithful to be a witness for Christ. You may have a completely different approach to sharing your faith than being confrontational, however. Instead, you may be of the logical, analytical, and more academic-oriented strain. You live to debate the deeper aspects of philosophical reasoning and relish the challenge of giving a detailed and apologetic defense of the faith. You may be much more suited to the intellectual approach. So, you got a biblical model for that. Paul. Paul is an obvious model of this style in Scripture, although he exhibited aspects of many different approaches. Reading through his letters, there is no doubt that his forte was a a well-reasoned, well-studied, well-organized, and well-articulated presentation of the gospel. Romans, for example, is a masterful presentation of the central truths of faith, such as God's sovereign nature, our spiritual dilemma, and Christ as the undeniable answer. This is Paul that's writing this. Romans, for that reason, has been called the cathedral of the Christian faith by some scholars. That's quintessential Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul's background testifies to the nature of his intellectual approach. He was well-educated at the most prestigious schools, mentored by the most respected of teachers in Judaistic law, Gamaliel, and he was well-suited for presenting Christ to the philosophers in Athens. So Acts chapter 17 is a good example. If you turn there in your Bibles, take a peek, kind of glimpse in here on what Paul is doing. Acts chapter 17, so Paul's in Athens, and verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others would say he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him into the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. I love verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Philosophy. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And he goes on to take them right through the whole deal, using them and their intellectual abilities as his starting point. Look at verse 30. 
Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. See, Paul was a mind to be reckoned with. He ingeniously reasoned with these lofty but lost thinkers, systematically moving them through the gospel by starting with their own ignorance of God, an unknown God, and working them through to their need for repentance in the climactic revelation of the resurrected Christ as Lord and Savior. The result? People believed including a distinguished member of the Areopagus. It is doubtful that these intellectuals would have responded to a confrontational turn-or-burn approach of Peter. And many in today's society are no different. God knows what he's up to. He places the right person in the right place at the right time for the right reason, producing the right result the salvation of souls. Amen? read a story in a newsletter called the Areopagus, actually. It was an apologetics newsletter. And it's about a college student who attended a philosophy class which held a discussion about God's existence. The professor presented the following logic. Has anyone in this class ever heard God? No one spoke. Has anyone in this class ever touched God? No one spoke. Has anyone in this class ever seen God? And when no one spoke for the third time, he said, then there is no God. One student thought for a second, and then he asked for permission to reply, and curious to hear what this bold student's response would be, the professor agreed, and the student stood up and he asked the following questions. Has anyone in this class ever heard our professor's brain? Silence. Has anyone in this class ever touched our professor's brain? Still silent. Has anyone in this class ever seen our professor's brain? When no one in the class dared to speak, the student concluded then, according to our professor's logic, it must be true that our professor has no brain. (laughs) According to the story, the student received an A in the class. But some people need a little more logical, organized presentation of the gospel, one that appeals more to the intellectual aspect of our makeup than the emotional side. Maybe you're a Paul. You've realized that accepting the gospel does not mean that you're committing intellectual suicide and you can prove it. There are myriads of people who need to hear from you if that's you. Myriads of people. As our society becomes more and more secular, this approach becomes more and more critical. Personal characteristics of this style, if you are naturally inquisitive, analytical, and logical, hey, let the Holy Spirit have a field day with you. Here's some contemporary examples, and I'm sure you could give them to me. People like C.S. Lewis, Ravi Zacharias, 
William Lane Craig, just to name a few. We have people that have this style in our church. Maybe you've met them. I won't embarrass them by saying their names, but you'll be able to sculpt them out as you begin to interact with people. My son Aaron gravitates toward this approach, being a philosopher. And many of you will remember that Mike Godding was a very strong apologist in this church, clearly in this category. But there's some spiritual precautions that go along with this one too. And here it is. Don't substitute giving answers for giving them Jesus. Don't substitute giving answers for giving the gospel. And be careful not to develop an argumentative attitude. Realize that no one, no one can be argued into the kingdom. No one can. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is what saves souls. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. It's not you. It's not your logical argument. Your answers, and more importantly, how you present those things, serve to draw people to Christ. So your guiding verse should be 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Well, let's step it up a bit. Maybe you haven't related to these two examples at all. Chances are good that this one may hit the mark. The next style seems to be the most common one in the church. Many of you may discover that through your questionnaire that you hopefully are not filled out, have not filled out yet, that the testimonial style best describes you. Testimonial approach. Here's the biblical model. Great example of this style is the man, the man born blind that Jesus healed in John chapter 9. Okay? Now this is not, this is not a, a huge icon of the faith. This is not an apostle that we're looking at here now. It's, it's just a guy that was born blind and was healed by Jesus. Great example. Well, we don't need to read the whole chapter. Hopefully you know about it, what, what the basic context is. If you don't, I suggest that you go home and you read about it. John chapter 9. All we know of this man is written in this chapter. That's it. It's all right here in John chapter 9. He was blind since birth and he had no educational training, probably had no confidence to confront anyone, yet after Jesus opens his eyes, he cannot stop talking about what happened to him. He's immediately thrust before a hostile audience to explain his experience. And he's thrust before these people three times. Verse 10, for example. So then they were saying to them, to him, how then were your eyes open? And he answered, and he said, the man was called Jesus, made clay and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And he, he tells them the whole story about what happened to him. Verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day on which Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Verse 17, so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. 
Verse 24. The second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, said, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. This one thing I do know, I was blind before and now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, and I love this, I love this. I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? This is the leading religious rulers in the land. And they reviled him and and then they get crazy, right? You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. And, and, And on and on it goes, this interaction. And this guy just cracks me up. He's saying, look, he healed me. He's he's the Messiah. (laughs) They wouldn't believe him. I need to point out, though, that we also see a sprinkling of the confrontational and the intellectual approaches as he's pressed by the leaders for his testimony. He confronts their ignorance and he challenges their own faulty reasoning. You know, I love Malcolm Muggeridge's sarcastic line when he says, you know, we've educated, referring to the Pharisees, he says, we've educated ourselves into imbecility. He didn't set out to confront them as Peter would have, nor does he desire to debate them theologically as Paul might have. Rather, he did his best to avoid both of those approaches. Rather, he continually focused on the simple explanation of what Christ had done for him. Simple. You know what he did? He testified. He testified and he was a witness. Read verse 25 again. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Simple testimony. And his type of straightforward testimonial approach is exactly what some people need if not most people. They need to hear that. Anybody can do that one. Some people might not be as as empowered by the Holy Spirit in the results of it, but everyone, if you're in Christ, has a testimony, right? Now, they don't need to necessarily be blatantly confronted. They don't want to be drawn into a debate. What they desperately need is someone to personally explain to them how real Jesus is. And the people with a testimonial style can do that to describe how he can reach into the depths of our greatest need and heal us spiritually. That story might very well be your story. Verse 3 says that this man had been born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I don't think that was just talking about the healing. I think it was talking about his testimony as well. That perfectly highlights how God uses us uniquely and individually to impact other people for Christ. In one writer's words, quote, we are custom tailored for a particular approach. God had been preparing this man all of his life for these events. And his telling them in a way that would point them to Christ. Has God been preparing you all of your life? I think he has. How many people could benefit from hearing your story? Personal characteristics of this style? People who use the testimonial approach are usually clear communicators, good storytellers, 
and good listeners. That's important. Some contemporary examples. Johnny Erickson Tata. Lee Strobel. We've got people in our own context that have these styles, and I'm sure you can identify them. That's my particular preferred style. And by the way, your personal testimony doesn't have to be super dramatic in order to be spiritually effective. Let me say that. In case you're down on yourself thinking, well, I don't have much of a story. You do. You shouldn't be discouraged if you haven't had a miraculous transformation through a major crisis experience in your life. You may not have been a hopeless alcoholic ready to end it all or an incurable drug addict on your last leg. You may not have had a near-death experience which brought you to the threshold of accepting the offer of Christ. But all of us who have come to Christ have come to a crossroads of decision. Every one of us who has truly come to Christ has had to deal with the death sentence of sin in our life in one way or another. And that's what you tell. You may have been brought up in a church all of your life before you realized that being religious didn't make you a Christian. But how you move from religion into a relationship with Christ will likely be more relevant to most of your friends and family than a sensational story of dramatic proportions. The psalmist gives us the guiding principle in Psalm 66, 16. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. Spiritual precautions on this style? Be careful to connect your story to their situation and present Christ as the clear solution. Don't just talk about yourself. You need to relate it. You need to give him Jesus, okay? Don't stop with just your story. Like my mentor used to say, go and give him Jesus. So you need to listen to them. Zone in on what it is that they need. Pray for an opportunity that God would open up for you. And when God opens that door, take off your shoes Tread carefully and walk humbly because you're on holy ground. You see, every one of us has a particular style, an approach to life coinciding with the way God designed us specifically. It may be any one of the three that we've depicted here this morning. You may confront, you may reason with people, or you may just testify to what has been done in your life to people. Whatever way you do it, we are all compelled by the love of Christ to give them the truth. Amen? If you and I are not allowing God to empower that uniqueness to impact people for Christ, how will we answer him one day when we stand before him and he says, I made you, I made you in a certain way for a certain purpose. What did you do with the message I gave you? Years ago, a dramatic TV ad showed a Mercedes-Benz colliding with a cement wall, totally crushing the front end. A German Mercedes-Benz engineer had invented an amazing safety technology that would give Mercedes a huge financial edge in the heavily competitive car market. This technology protected a driver from injury or death even if the car crashes into a solid brick wall at a very high speed. 
Other car companies craved to lay their hands on this same technology that Mercedes owned. And the engineer behind it all was interviewed later and asked if he would share this technology with the industry or he would keep it for himself for Mercedes to make a huge profit on it. What he said shocked the car industry. When asked if Mercedes will protect this technology from being copied by other car companies, the engineer surprisingly said no. And when he was asked why, this was his response. He said, because some things in life are too important not to share. Heavenly Father, some things in life are too important not to share. And your gospel is the epitome of that. Father, you have designed us. You have fearfully and wonderfully made us. And you've given us a purpose. If we are in you, you've left us on this earth to testify. Whether it comes in the form of a confrontational approach, an intellectual approach, or testimonial approach, or any of the others that we're about to look at in the coming weeks. Father, open our eyes to what it is that you've done in our lives and what you're doing in our lives and give us the courage and the boldness and just the willingness, Lord God, to step out in faith and let you do what you do best and watch the results as people's eyes light up when they receive the wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be busy about that business until the day you come to take us home. I pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.